You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Today I have a great story for you about a man named Charles Nall. He is believed to be the only person in the history of the United States to have been rescued from slavery four times. But before we do that, let's start with the question of the day. Chances are whatever electronic device you are using to listen to this podcast has some sort of data storage. Now, I'm old enough to remember that the first computers I had ever used saved all their data to external cassette drives. Does anybody remember the Commodore PET or the Atari 800? Then floppy disks became the norm, and I really, really was happy when hard disk drives became affordable. When I purchased my first computer back in 1992, my Uncle Marv advised me to purchase the largest hard drive that I could afford. I ended up getting a 200 megabyte drive, which you know really was considered gigantic at the time, and I paid an extra $200 to upgrade it from the 120 megabyte drive that was standard to the system. My question for you is, when was the first hard drive invented? And here are your choices. Was it 1, 1948? 2, 1956, 3, 1965, or 4, 1972. Again, when was the first hard drive invented? Was it 1, 1948, 2, 1956, 3, 1965, or 4, 1972? As always, I'll let you ponder over these choices and I'll tell you the answer toward the end of this podcast. About two months ago, my wife and I were in downtown Troy, New York for their monthly Troy night out. The architecture of downtown Troy makes it among our favorite small cities to walk around in, and since it's just a few miles from our home, we're there fairly often. What I was looking for that evening was a plaque that hung on the wall of a building. And of course, I never bothered to bring the exact address with me, so here we are wandering around. But I told my wife it's around here somewhere, and suddenly there it was. The small plaque near the corner of 1st and State Street simply reads, quote, Here was begun on April 27, 1860, the rescue of Charles Nall, an escaped slave who had been arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act. That doesn't say very much, and I guess a few people know of the amazing story that occurred right there on that spot they were standing. And to tell the story, we must go all the way back to 1821, That's when a plantation owner in Culpeper County, Virginia, a guy named Peter Hasbro, purchased a slave at auction. Her name was Lucy, and the sale included her four children, the youngest of which was named Charles, who is the subject of the story. 
While it cannot be said with any certainty, it has long been believed that Charles was Peter Hasbro's illegitimate child. It was one of many, many that he is thought to have fathered. On January 31, 1831, the elder Hasbro transferred ownership of Charles to his son, Blucher. Yes, Charles was now owned by his half-brother. And it was said that they bore a strong resemblance to each other, but there is no photographic evidence to prove one way or the other. This supposed family relationship brought Charles privileges that few slaves would ever have. You see, he was a coachman, a detail that he'll make good use of later in the story, and he was able to travel with Blucher to many places far and wide. When he wasn't traveling, Charles tended to the stable. Upon reaching adulthood, Charles was allowed to marry another slave named Catherine Sims, or Kitty for short. Since it was typically forbidden for married slaves to live together, Kitty resided on a farm that was about 3 miles or 4.8 kilometers away. In 1847, Blucher decided to sell off some of his slaves. In what was assumed to be an act of retaliation for this move, one of Blucher's barns was set ablaze, most likely by the slaves. And as history has always shown, perceived retaliation is countered with even greater retaliation from the other side. So Charles and five other slaves were ordered to enter the mill on the farm, its doors shut, and they were beaten. Next thing you know, all six were handcuffed and shipped by boxcar to Richmond, Virginia's slave mart. The two darker-skinned slaves were sold, but the four lighter-skinned were not. The highest bid place for Charles was $650. That'd be about $16,000 today, and I'm guessing that was far below what Blucher thought he was worth. So the next day, the four unsold men were taken back to Blucher's farm, and that included Charles. In May of 1855, something shocking happened. Kitty's owner, Colonel John Triplett Tom, died. His will called for a number of his slaves to be manumitted, you know, freed, and Kitty was one of them. Not only that, but the four daughters that she had with Charles were also now free. For most slaves, this would be the ideal dream, but it was really a nightmare for Charles and Kitty. That's because Virginia law at the time required that all freed slaves had to leave the state within one year or risk being re-enslaved. That could mean being sold down the river and never, ever seeing Charles again. At the same time, if she moved to a free state, the distance would be so great there'd be an equally good chance that they'd never be able to see one another again. The couple realized that there was only one solution, and it was a risky one. On May 21, 1856, Kitty and their children moved to neighboring Washington, D.C., which still had slavery, but allowed freed slaves to live there as long as they carried their free papers. Lose those papers for even a moment, and one could be right back into slavery. In October 1858, Blucher received word that Kitty was very sick and could die. And this is a time of great turmoil in the slave states, but Blucher cautiously gave Charles and another slave named Jib Banks a one-week pass to head to D.C. As you can probably guess, they never got there. On October 15, 1858, the two men were able to give their chaperones a slip, and they began their escape to freedom. Charles Nall ended his dangerous journey in Albany, New York, which is about 15 minutes from my home. It was later learned that Charles had arranged for his escape with a man named Minot S. Crosby. He was a 26-year-old missionary from Massachusetts. 
Crosby was teaching school in Culpeper, but in reality he was working as part of the Underground Railroad. And right around the time of Charles's escape, Minot's actions came under suspicion and he was also forced to flee. And here's where things really start to get interesting. The Underground Railroad found Charles a job in nearby Sand Lake, New York. His coachman skills came in handy as he trucked lumber from the mills there. And as for a place to live, he was staying with a family that had also just relocated to Sand Lake. That was the family of Minot S. Crosby. In his spare time, Charles was determined to learn how to read and write. These were skills that were denied to the slaves by law. And this would prove to be a big, big mistake. Somehow, the contents of a letter that Charles had sent to his family came to the attention of a 25-year-old lawyer named Horatio F. Averill. He had previously been forced to leave a New York City law firm for suspected embezzlement. You know, a real honest guy. This scoundrel decided that he should contact Blucher and let him know that he knew exactly where his runaway slave was. And, in exchange for retaining his counsel, Avril would assure the return of Charles. By this time, Charles had moved to nearby Troy. One only has to spend a few minutes walking around the downtown of Troy today to realize that this was once an incredibly prosperous city. And it was a wealthy man named Yuri Gilbert who hired Charles to be the coachman for his wife. On April 27, 1860, Charles was sent to get bread a few blocks from the Gilberts' mansion. While sitting on his wagon outside the bakery, two men came up from behind and they grabbed him. One man was Deputy U.S. Marshal John L. Holmes, and the other was a guy named Jack Whale. He was a slave catcher hired by Blucher to bring Charles back home. They took Charles to the Mutual Bank Building. That's the building in Troy where you'll find that plaque that I read to you at the beginning of the story. And they took him to the second floor office of the U.S. Commissioner. There he was greeted by that scoundrel Averill and another lawyer who was hired by Blucher named William Beach. As for the commissioner who would decide Charles's fate, he just happened to be William Beach's son, Miles Beach. Charles didn't stand a chance. Now, in reality, it didn't make any difference that the two men were related to each other. Under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, it didn't matter if Charles was in a free state or not. Federal law treated escaped slaves as the property of their owners, no matter where they resided. Beach had issued the order for the arrest the day before. It read in part, quote, In the name of the President of the United States of America, you are hereby commanded to apprehend Charles Nall, now alleged to be in your district, a colored person charged with being a fugitive from labor and with having escaped from service in the state of Virginia. Now the order continues, but that gives you a general idea of the tone of the document. Now that Charles is in custody, Commissioner Beach signed additional papers and ordered Charles to be sent back to Virginia on the very next train out of the city. What no one had anticipated was the reaction of the citizens of Troy. One of Yuri Gilbert's sons was the first to notice that Charles was missing, and within minutes the Underground Railroad sprung into action. Suddenly a large crowd began to form outside the commissioner's office, and it just grew and grew. No one was exactly sure what was going on up there in the commissioner's office, 
but there was one woman who had snuck upstairs and acted as a lookout. As long as they could see her, they knew that Charles was still in the building. That woman was the one and only Harriet Tubman. Around 3.30 p.m., Charles nudged the window open and he attempted to jump to the crowd below, but he was quickly pulled back into the building. Shortly after this happened, Martin Townsend, who was a local lawyer for the Underground Railroad, presented the commissioner with a writ of habeas corpus. This is really just a bit of stalling on their part until they can come up with a real rescue plan, but now Charles is required to appear before Judge George Gould a couple of blocks away. That site is now where the modern-day Russell Sage College stands. By this time, the crowd had grown to an estimated 2,000 people, you know, so leaving the premises was not going to be easy. Charles was brought downstairs, and as he emerged from the building, Tubman screamed, Here they come! She grabbed onto Charles and refused to let go. Tubman was quoted as saying, Drag us out, drag him to the river, drown him, but don't let them have him. That might be a bit of an exaggeration as to what she said, but clearly she was holding on for dear life. Charles was getting pulled in all directions, but the mob basically forced him toward the bank of the Hudson River, which was right down the street. He was then placed aboard a small boat, and he was rowed across to the other side. Unfortunately, authorities had telegraphed ahead that Charles Null had escaped, and almost as soon as the boat ran ashore on the other side, he was immediately arrested. His freedom lasted just 10 short minutes. He was taken to the third floor office of a nearby building to await the arrival of the federal marshal. If you're curious, the McDonald's restaurant in Waterville, New York now stands on that very site. Call it intuition or whatever, but a large portion of the crowd felt that they needed to get to the other side of the Hudson. They filled the ferry and just about any other boat they could find to get to the other side. The crowd gathered around the building while Tubman and a small group went upstairs to the office where Charles was being held. Shots were fired by the officers and soon two men were injured, but it was soon realized that they were overpowered by the mob. Fearing for their safety, the decision was reluctantly made to set Charles free. Keep in mind, this is the third time he's now been freed. His rescuers took him down the road to the U.S. Army's Waterville Arsenal, which is there to this day. Charles was then loaded on a wagon and ultimately taken approximately 40 miles, or 65 kilometers, to hide out in Amsterdam, New York. One month later, the citizens of Troy raised $650. That's the same amount that was bid for his purchase at auction years earlier, and they purchased his freedom. Charles Nall was now a free man. Charles Nall returned to Troy on May 25, 1860, and was reunited with his family a few weeks later. For the first time ever, they could all live together under the same roof. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Shortly after the Civil War ended, Charles Kitty and their eight children moved to Washington, D.C. Charles worked as a postal carrier and Kitty as a seamstress. He lived there until his death on July 13th of 1875. Now let's jump forward to August 9th of 1932. Charles's son, that 77-year-old John C. Nall, happened to be passing through Troy on his way to vacation in Saratoga Springs, New York. He was asked to be the guest of honor at a dedication of a plaque in his father's honor. That's at the same location where his father had been first rescued and heard the story of his father's escape for the first time ever. It turns out that his dad had never told any of his children anything about the events that secured his freedom. Needless to say, John was stunned by what he had just learned, and upon returning home started to write a book about his father's life. Sadly, it was never to be completed. He died less than two years later on July 29th of 1934. I do want to add one last detail to the story. It's about that scoundrel lawyer Horatio Averill who turned Charles in. The very next town over from where I live is named Averill Park. Yes, it's named in his honor, although you know I doubt there are many that live there who know what Averill had done. Now, I know this will never happen, but maybe they should change the name of the town to honor Charles Nall. You know, maybe Nalltown, Nall Park, Nallville. Actually, I like that one, Nallville, kind of like Nashville. I can tell you this, however, I'll never be able to drive through Averill Park, New York again without thinking about the rotten thing that he did. Now, if you want to learn more about the story, I suggest you read the book Freeing Charles by Scott Christensen. It was really his hard work and research that helped me fill in many of the gaps that I had, you know, while putting the story together. Both my wife and I read it, and we both enjoyed the book. It's well worth the read. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Ah, but Ginny, why should I worry about Harry with you standing there looking so lovely? All I can think of is what beautiful music we could make together. Do you think we could? Yes, if you had a harmonica and I had a piece of tissue paper and a comb. Jenny, listen, I'm warning you, he tries that same line on Dinah. Oh. He's just a moth-eaten Casanova. Von Zell, you're jealous. Jenny, listen to me. I've always been a great lover. Let me tell you the story of my youth. Why, I'd love to hear it. It goes back to when I was a mere lad. I loved a girl, and my boss's son loved the same girl. He had looks, money, position, yachts. Well, I? I was poor and had nothing. But you got the girl. No, he did. <laughs> And now, would you like to hear another story of my youth? Oh, no, Groucho. He's over at Beverly High. <laughs> no, why not talk about something, something cultural? Let's say music, huh? Frankly, frankly, I prefer to talk about art. Well, I prefer music. Art? Oh, oh, now, please, please, no arguments. Why argue when I can suggest a subject that covers both art and music? What is it? 
Spinach. Spinach? Spinach. Yeah, bird's eye, quick frozen spinach. Oh, yes, luscious, beautiful green spinach. Spinach? Yes, serve it, and you'll agree it's a picture no artist could paint. Hey? It's a symphony no composer could write, but it's a food everyone can eat and enjoy. Bird's eye spinach tastes so darn good, so garden fresh, you'd think you just picked it out of your own garden. All right, all right, but what in the world has spinach got to do with art? Groucho, listen, have you ever heard of the painting of Mona Lisa? Of course. And do you know why she is smiling? No. Because she just finished a big portion of bird's eye spinach. <laughs> All right, now, have you ever heard of Whistler's mother? Of course. Well, I used to shave his father. <laughs> Now, top that, you spinach hound. <laughs> it's a cinch. Bird's eye spinach will top anything. It not only tastes good, but it's so easy to prepare. With bird's eye spinach, there's no washing, no sorting, no sand, no grit. No stoop, no squat, no squint. <laughs> well, that too. Shall we squint? Yes. <laughs> Where does it say, shall we squint? I... You can't. No, but you can squint without seeing it any place. It's a body squint, huh? Like your car has a body squeak. Well, it has nothing to do with bird's eye spinach, and you will have nothing to do if you use it, but take those glistening green leaves of perfectly clean spinach out of the package and pop into boiling water. Why does it say boiling water? <laughs> well, I guess I'm washed up now. Well, I'll tell you this, Groucho, with bird's eye spinach, you'll never have to wash another spinach leaf again. Jenny, it's no use talking. This boy is spinach happy. <laughs> oh, wait, Groucho, I'll take over. Say, Harry, we'll, ad we'll admit that bird's eye spinach has some connection with art, but what has it got to do with music? That's well, what I want to know. Well, Jenny, please, what? let me inform you of the facts now. The day Franz Schubert was writing his great symphony, he was just about to write the last few notes when his mother called from the kitchen, Franz, your spinach is on the table, and that... Yes? That is why we now have Schubert's unfinished symphony. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've picked up more musical knowledge since I've been on this show. Oh, well, not only musical knowledge, Vegetable but... Vegetable knowledge, too. Yes, and, and valuable knowledge, because yeah. bird's eye spinach is so good that you, too, will drop everything to eat it. You, you see, one box of bird's eye spinach serves four. Everybody always wants to eat more, and that's good, because you can buy all of the bird's eye spinach right now that you want, and it doesn't take a ration point. And with these words, I leave you. Now, see that, Groucho? We live and learn. Yes, and after Harry's inspiring discourse on the arts, I've decided I'm going back to college. Oh, are you going back for additional courses? You bet I am. I left two orders of spinach in the girls' cafeteria. <laughs> I have to admit that I've always loved Groucho Marx's humor. I was debating whether to leave the entire comedy bit in or not, but in the end, I just chopped it down to about two-thirds of it. If you'd like to hear the remainder, just point your browser to archive.org and do a search for the April 19th, 1945 episode of Bird's Eye Open House. The show was normally hosted by Dinah Shore, but in this particular episode, Ginny Sims, the woman that you heard, was filling in for her. 
It was Clarence Birdseye who basically started the whole frozen food business, you know, that probably fills an aisle or two at your local supermarket. While he was working on the Labrador Peninsula in Canada between 1912 and 1915, Birdseye took a keen interest in the quick freezing of foods. In particular, the Inuit showed him that by quickly freezing fish at very low temperatures, the food would be almost as good as fresh when it was thawed. He started Birdseye Seafoods in 1923, but a lack of interest from the public at the time forced him into bankruptcy the very next year. Obviously he didn't give up, he then formed the General Seafood Company and continued to improve upon his method of quick freezing you know, of prepackaged fish, vegetables, and fruit. Birdseye sold the company to Goldman Sachs and the Postum Company for $22 million in 1929. That would be about $300 million today, which really isn't too bad for a business that was bankrupt just five years prior. They started the rollout to grocery stores the following year under the Birdseye name. This time, the product launch was a success, you know, making Birdseye a household name. And I hate to say this, but the ones that I ultimately blame for all those frozen chicken nuggets and chicken patties that are served as school lunches across this country every single day. In other news, here are three stories that all involve unusual deaths. On November 3rd of 1930, Miss Ophelia Winger, who was a student at the Marathon County Normal School in Wisconsin, she was getting ready to go to a party near her parents' home. Suddenly, her lips felt like they were on fire and the pain just kept getting worse and worse. A doctor noted that her lips were swollen and she appeared to have an infection in her mouth. Soon, her chin and throat just swelled up and a severe fever kicked in. Doctors were unable to figure out the cause and sadly, two days later, Athelia was dead. A pathologist traced the cause back to the lipstick she had applied while prepping for the party. It turns out she had used paper-matched lipstick, which uh, is no longer sold. Just to give you a brief idea of what they were, imagine an oversized matchbook. You flip the cover up, and inside are eight or ten paper matches, large matches, each with lipstick on its end. You tear one off and apply it to your lips. Athelia had obtained the paper-matched lipstick from a merchant who had been giving them away as a promotional item. Now, how they became contaminated is unknown, but it was blamed for her death. On July 18th of 1933, 83-year-old Howard W. Metz appeared in a Detroit court to make a claim against the estate of his late wife, a woman who he had not seen for 30 years. Back in 1904, he had asked for a divorce from his wife, Jeanette, but the request was denied. Yet he was still forced to pay her $25 per week in alimony. He never missed a single payment, even after he retired. Then, in February of 1931, Jeanette's mom died and she inherited the family home. Borders at the residence now provided Mrs. Metz with a steady income, and she finally decided to grant her estranged husband's wish and get divorced. She intended to marry another man, a guy named Walter E. Johns. But it was not to be. She died on March 8, 1931, just two days before the divorce was to be finalized. This meant that she was still married to Mr. Metz and he would inherit everything, even though they had not seen each other, as I said, in 30 years. 
Her future husband, Mr. Johns, claimed in court that she had intended for him to be the heir, not the -the out-of-the-picture husband. In addition, one of her boarders also made a claim against the estate. On the stand, Mr. Metz started crying over the loss of his mother-in-law and wife, to which the judge replied, quote, You don't have to put on an act for me. You cannot make me believe that you had any affection for a woman you had not seen for 30 years. You are nothing more than a prodigal husband and by good fortune heir to $30,000 unless these gentlemen can produce documentary proof of their claims against your wife's estate. And finally, on Wednesday, June 8th of 1955, a St. Louis jury found Albert L. Paglino guilty of the first-degree murder of a migrant railroad worker, a guy named Willie Burchett. Paglino killed Burchett in an effort to make it appear that he himself had died in a motel fire that occurred the previous April. It seems that Paglino was in deep financial trouble and, quote, wanted the world to think that he was dead. He probably could have gotten away with it, but Paglino made the stupid mistake of being cited in a bar on the day of his very own funeral. Paglino was sentenced to life imprisonment. Now, while he was being taken back to jail, Paglino entered the elevator just as the door was closing. That separated him from Deputy Sheriff Jack Culligan, and it was thought that Paglino had escaped, so radio alerts were sent out. But Paglino's freedom didn't last long. He had simply taken the elevator to the parking garage, and when the door opened, he said, quote, I'm Paglino. I'm waiting to be taken to jail. And that's exactly where he went. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. And now for the answer to the question of the day. And I had asked in what year was the first computer hard drive invented? Your choices were 1, 1948, 2, 1956, 3, 1965, or 4, 1972. So which one did you choose? The correct answer is choice 2, 1956. The IBM 350 hard disk drive was introduced to the public on September 4th of 1956. It was gigantic in size. Imagine two full-size refrigerators standing next to each other, but it had very little storage capacity compared to today's drives. Wikipedia listed as 3.7 megabytes in capacity, but the IBM website shows it as 5 megabytes, and since IBM invented it, I'll go with the 5 megabyte value. It contained 50 disks, each were 24 inches or 60 centimeters in diameter, and it weighed in at about 2,000 pounds or 900 kilograms. It was also very costly at about $9,200 per megabyte. Today's terabyte drives have reduced the cost by a factor of about 300 million. Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. Since the last episode, I have totally revised my website. You know, it's something I should have done a long time ago. It's now running WordPress, and I'm posting both the scripts and the corresponding audio for each podcast there. I think I went back about three years to put those episodes in. 
Now, I'm not a WordPress whiz, so the site does have its quirks, and I, there were some things I just left out because I couldn't get them to work. But I think I finally have it working fairly well. Just go to einsteinsrefrigerator.com or uselessinformation.org, and you can take a look at it. I've also learned that both of my books, that's Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, are both now out of print. Now, they're still available in the electronic versions, you know, for your favorite tablet, but you just can't get them in real paper form, at least not new copies. Now, there are plenty of used copies out there if you'd like one, or, you know, you can go to your local library and hopefully they have a copy. As you can probably tell, my voice is still weak, but it is getting better, much better every day. It turns out that one of my problems was acid reflux, which I didn't even know I had. Anyway, I thank everybody who's written to me, asked me you know, how I'm doing, but it is getting a lot better. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Bye.